One reason I think that uh, observing the church calendar is wise is because it really forces us to deal with parts of the Bible that we might otherwise ignore. Uh, Left to ourselves, it's easy to pass by sections of Scripture that challenge us or that make us uncomfortable or portions of Scripture that we know are especially offensive to the culture in which we live. Now, the reality is Lent is never going to win any popularity contest when it comes to people's favorite season of the year. The themes of Lent, the main biblical texts that it calls attention to, the hymns that go with the season, all of these things are more difficult in Lent than in some of the other seasons of the church year. Lent's always going to be a more challenging season, for example, than, say, Christmas or Easter. But if we're going to be faithful Christians committed to the whole Bible, committed to all the teachings of Jesus, then we need Lent just as much as the other seasons of the year. Not that Lent itself is an obligation, but the themes from Scripture and the passages of Scripture that it calls attention to, again, are very easy for us to ignore or to sidestep. And really, we need nothing more than to come face to face with these texts, with these teachings. One theme that Lent calls attention to that people certainly want to ignore in our day is the cost of discipleship. It's what can be called the cost of discipleship. There are several passages in the Gospels where Jesus emphasizes the cost of following him. Now it's interesting, right alongside passages that stress his grace and his mercy and his free forgiveness, you have these cost of discipleship passages. In in Luke, this is very clear. You've got passages that stress the necessity of obedience and following Jesus and bearing our cross. And it's interesting to see these two kinds of texts put side by side. Texts that emphasize his grace and his free forgiveness and texts that emphasize the necessity of obedience in a changed life. These texts are put right next to each other because these two facets of the gospel, these two sides of the Christian life go together. They're inseparable. They're not just side by side in the text. They need to be side by side in our lives. You have the free offer of forgiveness and the costly way of discipleship. They always go together in the Bible and in the Christian life. Now, these cost of discipleship passages remind us that the Christian faith is not just an ideology. We're not just playing a head game. It's not just a set of beliefs. Uh, The Christian faith has to be lived out in daily life. I've known a lot of people through the years who have very good theology. They've got their theological ducks all in a row, but personally, at a personal level, their lives are a mess. Morally speaking, their lives are a mess. And that is not discipleship. It's not a matter of belief alone. It's not merely studying the right theology. No, it's the theology that then translates into a radically transformed way of life. Uh, A book that I read in college that greatly influenced me in this area is uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. The title of the book really sums it up. And one of the things I love about that book is, is really the story behind it. Bonhoeffer certainly lived out his message. He had escaped from Nazi Germany, but then he felt a call to return to his homeland to be part of the resistance movement there. And uh, you may know how this story goes. He ends up getting arrested because he's part of a group that was seeking to assassinate Hitler. And uh, he ended up getting executed in a Nazi prison just days before the Allied forces would have liberated him and rescued him. It's really interesting in his book, 
Uh, again, the cost of discipleship. He contrasts in this book what he calls cheap grace, the cheap grace of the modern church with the costly grace of the true gospel. And Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace, what is cheap grace? He says, cheap grace preaches forgiveness without requiring repentance. It performs baptism without church discipline. There is communion without confession. He says, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. In contrast to that cheap grace, Bonhoeffer said, the grace of the gospel is a costly grace. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. According to Bonhoeffer, salvation is a free gift, but it will cost you everything. And that paradox is right at the heart of the Christian life. It's right at the heart of the gospel. Saying yes to God's free gift of forgiveness means saying no to sin and to the self. Again, listen to Bonhoeffer. Grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it will cost a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. And I think those words of Bonhoeffer are really a pretty good summary of what Jesus is teaching in these verses we've read from Luke chapter 9, chapter 9, verses 23 to 27. Here's how another pastor put it, uh, Anglican pastor John Stott, this is how he described the same reality. Stott says, Jesus never concealed the fact that his religion included a demand as well as an offer. Indeed, the demand was as total as the offer was free. If he offered men his salvation, he also demanded their submission. He gave no encouragement whatever to thoughtless applicants for discipleship. No, Jesus never lowered his standards or modified his conditions to make his call more readily acceptable. He asked his first disciples, and he has asked every disciple since, to give him their total commitment. Nothing less than this will do. So you don't think of these cost of discipleship passages like what you have here in Luke 9. Don't think of this as like the fine print in the contract, you know, sort of the gotcha clause in the contract. Don't think, it, think of it like those terms and conditions on a software update that you don't read and you just click the I agree box. No, this is right up front and center. Jesus is very clear about this. He's blunt about this, about the cost of discipleship. Now, unfortunately, there are some out there who do treat these cost of discipleship passages like those terms and conditions that you agree to without reading when you have a software update. But clearly, we must not do that. See, a religion that does not cost you anything isn't worth anything. Jesus makes it very clear. There is a cost involved to being his disciple. Salvation is a free gift, and it will cost you everything. Look at this passage in Luke 9, verse 23. Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. In that verse, there are three verbs. Deny, take up, and follow. Three key verbs. We want to look at each one of these. Each one is important. If anyone is going to agree to these terms and conditions, They've got to have a compelling reason to do so, certainly, and we will see as we get to the end that Jesus himself is the compelling reason for agreeing to these terms and conditions of discipleship. But we've also got to understand what the terms and conditions are. So deny, take up, and follow. Let's look at each one of these first. Deny. 
Deny yourself. Self-denial. Jesus makes self-denial a requirement for those who would be his disciples. What does it mean to deny yourself? Well, denying yourself means denying your sinful self, denying your sinful desires, your selfish desires. Now, this is interesting because what Jesus says about the self here stands in such sharp contrast with the way our culture speaks about the self. Jesus talks about self-denial. Our culture constantly preaches its own false gospel, its own pseudo-gospel of self-affirmation. Our culture is obsessed with pleasing the self, living for the self, and giving the self instant and constant gratification. Our culture is a culture obsessed with the self. We've got selfies to glorify ourselves in social media. We've got therapists focused on boosting our self-esteem. We hear lots of talk about self-care and self-love. Our culture is dominated with self-expression. That's the highest value, the highest virtue is to express yourself. It's called being true to yourself, to express yourself in whatever way you see fit. Now, it's not that all of these things are wrong in every single sense. You could probably take a a term like self-care or certainly a term like self-love and you could redeem, you could could cleanse them of all the corruptions of our culture and you could use that kind of language in a way that would be true, that would be biblical. It's not that these things are wrong in every sense in themselves. But when the self is not centered on Christ, when the self makes itself the center, the self becomes an idol. And there is no question that in our culture, many people have indeed made an idol of the self. Many people do indeed worship themselves. America is a polytheistic nation with 300 plus million gods, right? That's what we are. That's what we have become. The self is the biggest idol of them all today. I want what I want and I want it now. That is the mantra of the modern world world. And against all of that, Jesus teaches self-denial. Jesus calls for self-denial. That is to say, putting to death the sinful and selfish desires of the self so that we can use ourselves, we can use our bodies, our souls, all that we are to love God and to serve others. That's what self-denial is all about. Denying your sinful desires so you can do what is right before God and your neighbor. The Bible's ethic, the the Bible's way of life calls us away from self-centeredness and self-absorption and self-obsession. It calls us to put the sinful desires of the self to death, to live for a higher purpose than our own immediate pleasure or gain. Life is not about self-expression, but self-giving. It's not about expressing myself. It's about giving myself in love to God and others. That's denial, self-denial. Let's turn to the second verb here. Jesus talks about taking up our crosses. He commands us to take up our crosses daily. In a church like this and in a lot of Reformed churches, there's a lot of emphasis on taking up our Bibles daily. And we really want to be students of Scripture, and that's a wonderful thing. But if taking up your Bible daily is separated from taking up your cross daily, that's a big problem. Taking up your Bible daily should feed into taking up your cross daily. And learning to live a sacrificial life by putting into practice those things you're reading about, learning about, and studying in the Scripture. 
It's really interesting. Three times in Luke's gospel, cross-carrying is mentioned. And every time, it's someone other than Jesus who's carrying the cross. Obviously, Jesus is associated with the cross. He's nailed to one at the end of Luke's gospel. But all along the way, you've got these references to carrying the cross in Luke 9 here, in Luke 14 again, in Luke 23. In Luke 9 and 14, it is the disciples of Jesus who are said to take up their crosses. In Luke 23, it's Simon of Cyrene who carries the cross on which Jesus will be crucified. The point of all of this is really clear. Discipleship and cross-bearing are inseparable. They go together. Every disciple has to follow the pattern established by Jesus. The Christian life is a cruciform life. It is cross-shaped. Now, what is the cross? What does it mean to take up your cross? We've, of course, in... in Uh, over the course of the last 2,000 years, to some degree lost sight of exactly how uh, offensive and scandalous this teaching of Jesus was in its original context. What's the cross all about? What's it mean to, to, to carry a cross? Yes, the cross was scandalous in the ancient world. The Romans used this method of execution only for the worst of the worst criminals. It wasn't even something you would talk about in polite society. The cross was basically a torture device designed to make your death as prolonged and agonizing as possible. Uh, The historian Josephus said to die by way of crucifixion is to die the most wretched of deaths, a death full of pain and shame. Not just the physical pain you endure, but the psychological torment of being put to shame in this very public kind of way. Again, this is why they didn't talk about the cross in polite society. It was just too heinous and too gruesome. There's not one teacher other than Jesus in the ancient world who embraced the cross in any kind of way whatsoever. Certainly there's no teacher outside of Jesus who embraced the cross as a pattern for living or as a symbol of discipleship to his teachings. Indeed, to to make reference to the cross, to crucifixion, the way Jesus does here, would have been considered by many a sign of madness. It's even why his own disciples tried to argue with him and talk him out of the crucifixion when he would prophesy his own coming death in this particular The message of the cross was offensive to everyone in the days of the early church. Indeed, when Christians began to preach that Jesus had died on the cross for sinners as a substitutionary sacrifice, that this man Jesus was in fact God on the flesh, bearing his own curse, suffering and dying on the cross for the very people that put him there for their sins, that message was considered to be crazy. They would literally lock you up and throw away the key if you preached that way in the the early days of the apostles and and, in the time of the Roman Empire. It sounded like utter foolishness and insanity to claim that the cross was some kind of way of salvation, to claim that God became man to die this kind of horrific death. That's why Paul, when he deals with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, and he's talking about the cross as the way of salvation, he says, yes, this sounds foolish. It sounds utterly foolish, but of course the folly of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. But it's not just the cross as a way of salvation that sounded foolish. Just as foolish would be to talk about the cross as a way of life, as a pattern for how you are to live your life each day. That also would have been absolutely repulsive and nonsensical to people. They would have thought it was just crazy. 
See, when Jesus talks about being his disciple in these terms, in terms of taking up your cross every day, let's face it, Jesus did not have a very good uh, PR strategy. Uh, This is not good advertising. This is not a good marketing strategy. The marketers never would have allowed this kind of thing out if they could have stopped it. What's it mean to take up one's cross? If you take up your cross, that means death. Think about this in the ancient world. The day you took up your cross would be your last day on earth. To take up your cross means you are condemned to die and this is your last day on earth. You are carrying your cross to your own execution. But here Jesus says his disciples will carry their crosses daily. In other words, Jesus says, if you desire to be my disciple, understand what that means. It means you are to come and die with me every single day. Every single day you are to die. You're to die to yourself. That's the invitation Jesus is giving, an invitation to death. That's what it means to be a disciple. It is a daily death. Now, if you want to understand how we can die each day. How can the Christian die again and again and again? How can we take up our crosses and die daily? I think a great passage to look at is Paul in Galatians chapter 2. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See the point Paul's making there? See see what he's saying about the Christian life? He's saying, you die, you die to yourself so that Christ's life can, can shine through you. It's no longer Paul who's living, it's Christ who's living in Paul. And it's not Paul who's committed to self-expression. No, it's Jesus who is expressing himself through Paul. Jesus, the power of Jesus and the love of Jesus is animating Paul and driving Paul to do what he does every day. So the old Paul has died and a new Paul has come to life. The old self has been put to death. So a new self in union with Christ can arise. That's what it means to take up your cross every day. It means the whole Christian life is set to this pattern of dying to self, putting the self to death every day, crucifying the selfish self, the sinful self, again, so that Christ's love and holiness and wisdom can come to life in us. So that Christ's love and holiness and wisdom can be expressed through us. So his life can shine through ours. That's really the point. The cross represents death. And you know, most people fear death. And so to talk about discipleship in these deathly terms, that was going to scare a lot of people off. And of course, we know from the gospel accounts that it did. But those who want to be followers of Christ will say this. A follower of Christ will say, I fear displeasing Jesus more than I fear death. And so I will take up my cross, I will put my sinful self to death so I can live the way Jesus wants me to live. G.K. Chesterton put it this way, he said, The Christian must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. Taking up our crosses, drinking down the dregs of death every day. We drink it like wine. We we see that this is what Jesus has called us to. In fact, it's really interesting, too, to consider this. And, And this actually, I think, helps us better understand the big picture here. 
It's interesting, just before this passage in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus talks about disciples bearing their crosses, Jesus has talked about his own cross right before this passage. He makes a prediction, a prophecy. He announces he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the Jewish leaders. He's going to be killed, and then he will rise on the third day. That's right before this passage on the cost of discipleship. Right after this passage on the cost of discipleship, uh, when he talks about disciples bearing their crosses, Jesus talks about the glory of the coming kingdom, the, 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 the glory of the kingdom that's about to be revealed. And, of course, then he is transfigured on the mountain. So he gives them a glimpse, a kind of foreshadowing of the glory of his kingdom. So think about the flow of Luke 9. Jesus predicts his crucifixion, then he teaches on discipleship, which requires a crucifixion of the disciples every day, and then he reveals the glory of his kingdom. Teaching on discipleship is bracketed by Jesus talking about his own suffering and the glory of his kingdom. And that's by design. And this is really because this is the pattern of the Christian life. It is a cross leading to glory. It's a cross and a crown together. Yes, there's suffering. There is a cross to be born, but it leads to kingdom glory seen in his transfiguration. See, there's a death, yes, but it's followed by resurrection. There's a death, yes, but it's followed by this glorious new life. It is suffering unto glory. That's the pattern. That's what it means to take up your cross. There is a death, but it's always followed by a resurrection. There's no disciple who takes up his cross daily who does not also, in the act of taking up his cross every day, find new and glorious life. This is what it means to be a disciple. Every single day we take up our crosses. We die so that Christ can live in us and through us. We die to sin so we can live in righteousness. We die to ourselves so that we can live lives of love. Obviously, this cruciformity that Jesus calls us to is, again, very much at odds with the world. But understand, a crucified Savior, a Savior who went to the cross himself, would never be content to have disciples who are self-pleasing, self-indulging, and self-absorbed. It just can't be that way. You can't have a, 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 a Savior a Lord, a master, a teacher who lives this way and then his disciples do something completely different. It just can't be. We take up our crosses because Jesus took up his. So there's this denial, there's this taking up, and then third, the third verb is follow. Jesus says, follow me. Jesus is not forming a fan club around himself. He doesn't want fans. Jesus wants followers. Jesus obeyed his father, and he wants his followers to obey his father as well. He wants us to follow him in that pathway of obedience. Again, going back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer said, discipleship means adherence to Christ, sticking to Christ, sticking to Christ like glue. It means being united to Christ and living out your union with Christ. Again, that's, that's what Paul talks about again and again in his letters. We're united to Christ, we live it out. That's what it means to follow Christ. His character, his image is more and more crafted in us. Our lives are sculpted more and more to match his. His image is reproduced in us. To follow Jesus as our Lord means we cease following other gods and lords. It means we no longer go with the flow of the world or conform to the ways of the world. We go in the way of Jesus and we conform to his ways. 
To obey Jesus means disobeying the world. To obey Jesus means disobeying ourselves. That's, that's what makes it so hard. To follow Jesus means we give our whole lives to him. In all of life, in every area of life, we seek to implement his teachings and we seek to bear fruit that will bring him glory. This means you can't just follow your heart or follow your dreams or follow your own desires. No, you have to follow Jesus and his heart, his dreams, his desires for you will be very different than what the world lays out for you. Old covenant Israel was called to live for the sake of the world. God called Israel, the family of Abraham in Genesis 12, and then you see this in Deuteronomy and throughout the prophets. God called Old Covenant Israel to be a light to the nations, to live for the sake of the nations, to be a light to the world, shining God's truth and God's wisdom into the nations. Israel failed catastrophically in that calling. And so Jesus came to be the true Israel, to take up that call. And he died in order that the world might live. He died for the sake of the world. He laid down his life that the nations, that the world might have life. And now in following him, he calls us to share in his life pattern and his mission. He calls us to follow him in dying to ourselves that the world might live. He calls us to offer ourselves sacrificially for the sake of the world. That is the cost of discipleship. And guess what? Discipleship Never goes on sale. There's never a 50% off sale on discipleship. Jesus never slashes prices. The cost of discipleship is always the same. It is what it is. Now you might wonder, with these three verbs, deny, take up, and follow, you know, th this could make the Christian life seem rather dismal. Why would anybody want to be a Christian? Why should I be a Christian if this is true? Well, let me tell you something, and Jesus goes on to spell this out in the rest of this passage. You need to understand this. People who reject Jesus' way of discipleship are always the most miserable ones. And those who follow him in this way of discipleship are always the happiest ones. I realize that is another paradox here. You go your own way, you find misery, you die to self, you take up your cross, and you follow Jesus, and you find happiness. I realize that's a paradox, but it is true, and it's what Jesus teaches here. Obviously, it's true in eternity, in the final new creation, in the resurrection, but it is true even now. Those who reject Jesus' way find misery. Those who follow in Jesus' way find life and joy even now. See, as Jesus goes on to explain this, there's really nothing more fulfilling than being a disciple of Jesus. In this passage, Jesus is actually pointing the way to true joy even now. Jesus calls us to sacrifice many things in becoming his followers, but he never calls us to sacrifice our happiness. You need to understand that Jesus will call you to sacrifice many things. He never calls you to sacrifice your happiness. Now, you might have to sacrifice what you thought would make you happy, but quite frankly, we're terrible judges of what's going to make us happy if left to ourselves. Jesus never asks you to sacrifice true happiness. See, Jesus' call to his disciples actually includes astounding promises of happiness, astounding promises of joy here in this life and certainly in the hereafter. In other words, I'll put it this way. 
The call of Jesus to self-denial is not at all at odds with true self-interest. Jesus' call to self-denial is really not at all at odds with true self-interest. If you really are self-interested, if you really want to be happy, what are you going to do with your life? You're going to follow Jesus in the way of self-denial and cross-bearing. Not because it's easy, obviously, but because it is gloriously rewarding. And again, that's what you find here. That's what Jesus teaches here in this passage. Listen to what Jesus says a little bit further on. Verse 24, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world, but is himself lost? What is Jesus saying? If you try to live for yourself, you will lose your life. Eternally, that's true, but even in the here and now, that is true. If you live for yourself, you will lose yourself. That is true. It is a truism. People who only live for themselves are most to be pitied. They are the most miserable people of all. They think they're going to find life in doing what they want. In reality, they are losing their lives. And why is this? Well, ultimately, it's because sin separates us from Jesus. And Jesus is the source of all true happiness. Jesus is the joy of God embodied, the joy of God in human form. God is the source of all happiness. Sin separates us from God. And so sin separates us from happiness. God is the source of all happiness. Sin separates us from God. Therefore, sin makes us miserable. This is really the secret to Lent, I think. The secret of what Lent is really all about. The way to be happy is not to do what you want. No, the way to be happy is to stick close to Jesus. It's to adhere to Jesus. It's to draw near to God. Because again, all happiness is found in God. All happiness is found in Jesus. And Jesus is happy to share his happiness with us. He's happy to share his happiness with all who come close to him. With all who follow him. But you cannot get close to him without obeying him. If you want to save your life, that is, if you want to find true life, abundant life, now and in eternity, what should you do? You should do what Jesus says. You should follow Jesus. You should live as a disciple of Jesus. That is the pathway to true happiness. See, Jesus comes not as some self-help life coach or some self-improvement guru. No, he comes as the way the truth, and the life. He comes as wisdom incarnate. He comes as joy incarnate. He comes as love incarnate. He comes as your creator and designer. His spirit is the Lord and giver of life. When Jesus speaks, Jesus knows what he's talking about. When Jesus instructs you about losing life and finding life, he knows what he's talking about. The way of the cross is not foolish. What's foolish is not taking up your cross and following Jesus. What's foolish is thinking that you could ever have joy and happiness without Jesus. Now the world will make these promises to you. The world will promise you life but deliver death. That's always been Satan's way. The world promises you life and delivers death. Jesus says die and then he gives you abundant life through that death. 
The world promises life and gives you death. Jesus says die and then gives you the most glorious life of all. See, it is always in your own best interest to obey Jesus. Don't settle for anything less than what he promises to give his followers. That is the way, the true pathway to joy. Well, I want to leave you tonight with just a couple thoughts as we begin this Lenten journey together. First, consider this. If we had to summarize what these three verbs in verse 23 are really all about, these three verbs, deny, take up, and follow, if we really had to boil that down to just one verb, what would it be? I would say the word would be sacrifice. That's really what it all comes down to is sacrifice. Sacrifice is such a key concept in the Bible. So much of the Bible is about sacrifice. Lent, I would say, is all about sacrifice. If you wanted to put Lent in one word, that's it, sacrifice. Luke chapter 9 really as a whole is all about sacrifice. You know, we're going to experience this in just a minute. The the message of Lent is that uh, we're all going to be dust and ash in the end. We came from dust, we're returning to dust. Uh, The message of Lent is ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The dust part I think is really easy to understand because man was made from the dust in the beginning and so we're going to return from dust when we're put back in the ground after we die. But why ashes? Sometimes people ask that question. I get the dust part, but why ashes? Why ashes? How do you get ashes? Well, think about how we get ashes. To get ashes, you have to burn something. And so if scripture says you're going to end up as ash, that's not, which it does, that's not a reference to cremation. What that means is that in this life, you have been set on fire. God is going to turn you into ash. You have been set on fire because Jesus has given to his disciples his fiery Holy Spirit. And so every day when you take up your cross and follow him, you become a spiritual sacrifice, a a fiery sacrifice, a living sacrifice, as Paul says in Romans 12. And so tonight as you receive the ashes, being covered in ash is not a bad thing in the Bible. It means you are a sacrifice. And if you're trusting in Christ, it means that you are an acceptable sacrifice, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Yes, those ashes do signify death, but death not just as the penalty of sin, they signify the death we're called to live out every single day. This cruciform way of life as God's sacrificial people, as the followers of Jesus who are taking up their crosses every single day. We are living sacrifices set on fire with God's spirit. And so throughout the whole course of your life, you're kind of like a representative of the burning bush. God has set you on fire and you burn every day. And you'll burn out till the last day when Jesus takes you home. But that's the whole point of life, is to be a living sacrifice. That's what the ashes remind us of. One other thing here, as we wrap this up, we need to remember in our time and place, there is no way to lessen the offense of the Bible's teaching. No way to lessen the offense of the gospel or the biblical Jesus. Indeed, Jesus here goes on to say that those who are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of them. He's saying, do not be ashamed of me. Do not be ashamed of my words, my teaching. Do not be ashamed of the true Jesus and his words. See, he's giving a warning about being ashamed of him and his teaching here. We need to understand there are people all around us, people in the church today, who are ashamed of the teaching of Jesus in his word. And so they try to soften the Bible's message. They're ashamed of Jesus and his word, and so they want to make 
Jesus' words fit with the way the world thinks today. And so you've got famous Bible teachers, for example, today, who will say things like, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Why would we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament? Well, because, frankly, in the Old Testament, that's where a lot of the most offensive stuff in the Bible is found. But the biblical Jesus did not come to unhitch us from the Old Testament. He did not come to destroy the law of God. He came to fulfill it, to fulfill the law, to fulfill the Old Testament. You've got other teachers today who will pander to the world when it comes to controversial issues like life in the womb or sexuality or environmental stewardship or the role of government. And they're constantly trimming the sails to fit with the prevailing winds. Because they want to minimize the offense. Quite frankly, I think the Jesus Gets Us campaign, or He Gets Us campaign that uh, ran during the Super Bowl, is an example of this. It's really an attempt to rescue Jesus from His followers, who have become a bit of an embarrassment to Christians who are more progressive. And so they want to present a more humane and progressive Jesus to the world. And there's a lot of stuff there, but it's interesting. I came across this on their website. They quote somebody saying, the idea that Jesus is just like me, as opposed to the idea that I need to change to become like him, completely transform my thought process around Jesus. The idea that Jesus is like me, and so I don't need to become like him. Okay, do you see the problem with that? That is obviously mistake and Jesus does demand that we change. He does demand that we become like him. Now I'm not saying everything in that campaign is bad or wrong or that it's wrong in every way to market or advertise the gospel. I'm not saying any of those things. There's maybe a lot of things about that campaign that turn out to be good when it's all said and done. But there are a lot of problems with it too. And I will tell you this, any attempt to dilute the message of Jesus, any attempt to soften the hard edges of his teaching, any attempt to take the hard sayings of Jesus and make them soft, those kinds of attempts always, always, always backfire. There will never be a culturally acceptable Jesus in that sense, a a Jesus who fits right in with the ways of the world. Indeed, I would say a culturally acceptable Jesus is no Jesus at all. There is no way to remove the offensiveness of the real Jesus. There is no way, no way to eliminate the scandal of Jesus' teaching in Scripture. And remember, this whole book is his word. Not just the red letter parts, not just the gospel. The whole Bible is the teaching of Jesus. There's no way to eliminate the scandal of his teaching in Scripture. No way to soften the blow of the cross. No way to cheapen the cost of discipleship. I realize it's 2023, but Jesus does not need rebranding to keep with the times. Jesus spoke the truth plainly and clearly. He spoke just the truth we need to hear. And quite frankly, when we share this truth with people, when we proclaim this truth ourselves, we should shoot straight with people as well. Now, don't be surprised if people hate the Bible, and if they hate the biblical Jesus, Jesus told us to expect just that response. But he calls on us as his disciples to speak his truth and let the chips fall where they may. Jesus doesn't need us to run out and do damage control or to try to explain away his teachings or to alter his teachings to fit better with current norms. No. 
What Jesus wants are disciples who will deny themselves, who will take up their crosses daily, and who will follow him. May we be such a people. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And now let's sing together.